So if you're new to our current series, Revelation is an apocalyptic book. And now, usually we think of the word apocalyptic as meaning the end of the world, but its original meaning is unveiling or revealing. So what that means is that while Revelation does tell us about things that are to come in the future, its main concern is to pull back the curtain so we can see the hidden truth about our world, our, uh, the hidden truth about our reality, and so it can impact how we live in the present. Our passage today in Revelation 12 comes at a, a very significant point in the book. Some scholars see this chapter as coming at the halfway point of Revelation. It's a hinge point for the book. And we've recently learned about two series of seven judgments so far, and one more series of seven is on the way, the bold judgments. And then last week, our passage ended with the sounding of the seventh trumpet in Revelation eleven fifteen. Loud voices in heaven announced, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And this begins a pause in the judgments in Revelation. Instead, the next few chapters are going to show us this clash of kingdoms between the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of our Lord. It's going to show us how Christ becomes the king. And verse 11, or chapter 11, verse 18 tells us he becomes the king by destroying the destroyers of the earth, defeating the evil kingdoms and the forces behind them. And that leads us to our, our very fun passage in Revelation 12 today. I, I, I actually really, really love it. Um, my notes were like three times longer than what I'm giving to you now. So um, strap in. Verse one. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to heaven and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. 
But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a, a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. So John opens this new set of visions by describing a woman of cosmic proportions. She's clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and she has a crown of 12 stars. Her appearance should call to mind Joseph's dream from Genesis 37, verse 9. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. Many ancient religions worshipped the sun and moon, but here instead, the sun is a royal robe. It's nothing more than clothing. And the moon is just a fancy ottoman for the cosmic woman to put her feet on. She's like a queen. All of this signifies her dominion over creation. And then continuing the royal motif, she's wearing a crown. But this is not just any crown. The original Greek term refers to a laurel wreath crown given to victors like the champions in the ancient Olympic Games and to leaders who won victory in battle. It's a crown for conquerors. And we've seen these victors' crowns six times already in Revelation, like in chapter 4, with the crowns that the 24 elders laid before the throne. And this connection makes sense, since her crown is made up of 12 stars, and the number 24 is two sets of 12. Yeah, math, I'm good at math. And this is uh, probably reflecting both the uh, 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. The cosmic woman is wearing a victor's crown. And there hasn't even been a battle yet. It's as if her victory has already been assured. It's interesting. So who is this woman? Surprise, surprise, there's debate about this. Some would say she's Israel. That's the faithful remnant of Israel. Others see the woman as being the church. And then there's a third camp that says she's both. Because ultimately, the church and faithful Israel are together part of the same community who follow after God. Whichever way it goes, though, the cosmic woman's identity shouldn't distract us from the main points the text is trying to make about God's people. She's wearing a crown of victory. Now to verse 2. She was pregnant and crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. The, the pain in childbirth should bring our minds all the way back to Genesis. After Adam and Eve sinned by eating the forbidden fruit, God says to Eve in Genesis 3.16, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. But God also promises that in spite of that pain, out of that pain would come from Eve one who would destroy all evil. One verse earlier in Genesis 3.15, 
God is cursing the serpent who deceived Adam and Eve. And God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God here predicts a constant war between the offspring of the serpent, that's those who follow in the ways of the serpent, those who oppose God, and the offspring of the woman, that's the community of God. But also God promises that eventually the serpent's head will be crushed by one born from the woman. So the cosmic woman's child, he's representing the hope that the serpent will one day be defeated. But in the meantime, there's still the birthing pains. Paul says in Romans 8, 22 through 23, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Cosmic woman is in labor. And in the midst of all of that, she's got the world's worst doula just sitting there waiting to eat the baby. And the dragon stood before the woman who is about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. And verse nine says the dragon is that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Serpent is waging war against the offspring of the woman. In Exodus, Pharaoh ordered that every newborn son of Israel be thrown into the Nile River. And later after Jesus' birth, King Herod orders that every son two years and younger in Bethlehem be killed. And for John's original readers, Emperor Domitian at this time was leading an empire-wide crackdown on Christianity, brutally torturing and executing them. And we see the dragon's appetite today in countries where Christians are being severely persecuted. Around, or according to the 2023 World Watch list, more than 312 million Christians around the world face very high or extreme levels of persecution. And it's a reminder to, to pray for our brothers and sisters in those countries who have it way worse than we do. Now, why is the dragon appearing as a dragon and not as a serpent? Well, in the ancient world, dragons were just seen as big serpents. <laughs> and the prophet Isaiah equates both of them with a destructive sea monster called the Leviathan. It's one, uh, it's one reason that the sea for Israel represented death for them. They would look at the surface and go, who knows what sort of massive monsters lurk underneath. And that's why the deliverance of Israel in Exodus through the Red Sea was so remarkable. God took his people through that which should lead to death and brought Israel to new life. Isaiah 51, 9 through 10. Was it not you, the Lord, who, who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? And John's description of a hungry dragon with 10 horns, it reflects the fourth beast envisioned in Daniel 7.7. 7. There, the fourth beast represented the Roman Empire, the ten horns symbolizing its military might. And the difference in Revelation 
is that this dragon has seven heads instead of just one. So this dragon is like Rome, but also more than Rome. It's totally evil, full of death. And this dragon also has seven diadems. The term used describes not the laurel wreath crown uh, that the woman is wearing, but crowns made of metal. It's a, a crude imitation of Jesus in Revelation 19, 12. On his head are many diadems. The dragon has crowned himself. He's a usurper, not a true king. But legitimate king or not, the dragon does have power and rules over the kingdoms of this world. Ephesians 2, 2 calls him the prince of the power of the air. We don't just see Rome in this monster. The dragon's appetite for innocent life is reflected in the Babylonian empire. Jeremiah 51, 34. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has devoured me. He has swallowed me like a monster. And even further, dragons were often identified with Egypt and Pharaoh. Pharaoh's crown was wreathed with a giant serpent. And Ezekiel even calls Pharaoh a dragon. So this dragon is part Rome, Babylon, and Egypt. All of the worst enemies of the people of God rolled into one. He is, as Alistair Roberts says, the monster behind all monsters. G.K. Beale writes that the dragon stands for the, the devil himself as the representative head of evil kingdoms. So when we wonder how evil things can happen in the world, how governments can abuse, how countries can destroy, how systems can exploit. Jesus pulls back the veil and says, this is how. The dragon is the author and originator of injustice. As John Calvin says, truth he assails with lies, light he obscures with darkness, the minds of men he involves in error, he stirs up hatred, inflames strife and war, and all in order that he may overthrow the kingdom of God. Evil exists. Just read the headlines or the comment section of literally any website. Evil exists. There's no denying it. But evil is not just a concept. Evil exists because there's an enemy. And he wants to devour you. We, uh, of course, make an error when we see Satan under every rock. But we also make an error if we reduce him just down to a metaphor. To quote uh, Kaiser Soze, the greatest trick the, dev the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. You know, it's, we're, we live in the modern world. We're far too rational and advanced to believe in a real devil, right? I mean, we, we can have AI write our Christmas cards for us. We don't live in a world where cosmic beings battle. But 1 Peter 5.8 warns, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour and like a good predator, he's perfectly happy for us to sit still thinking we're safe. We have an enemy and we should be vigilant. But Paul reminds us that ultimately other humans are not our enemies. Ephesians 6, 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, 
but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Yes, the dragon uses people like Nero, Domitian, and Pharaoh, but ultimately other people are not the enemy. Remember, Satan wants us distracted. He wants us angry at those people so we completely forget about him and what he's trying to do to our hearts. Satan doesn't have to war with us through outright violence if we're willing to walk in his ways. In verse 9, John identifies the dragon as the devil, the deceiver of the whole world. Devil, it's, it's one of the most common signifiers for Satan in the Bible. And the literal meaning of the term is liar. John says in, uh, or Jesus says in John 8:44 that the devil is the father of lies. And deception is perhaps one of his primary modes of operation. It, this is where he truly is effective. And what he does is he comes in, not just with outright lies, but he gives partial truths. That's how he really gets us. The dragon is smarter than us. He knows your blind spots. He knows your weaknesses. He knows how to twist the truth just enough so that it sounds right. He can appeal to our good intentions, to everything we value and stand for, and yet it's still a lie. Paul says in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen through 15, that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And he says, his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. So the devil says, this is actually the way to follow God. This is the way to fight against evil. This is how you should protect your kids. This is the way to find happiness, fulfillment, love. But he's selling a lie. We bite the hook and he reels us in. The dragon turns his attention on the woman now. Twice, she flees for her safety into the wilderness. And this reflects Pharaoh chasing the Israelites into the wilderness after they were freed from captivity. Exodus 14, 8. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. And the, the word pursued can be translated as persecuted. Throughout the Bible, there is a clear pattern of God's people finding themselves in the wilderness. You have Adam and Eve, Hagar and Ishmael, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, the Israelites, 40 years in the wilderness, David, Elijah, and even the Jewish exile into Babylon was described as a sort of wilderness in the book of Ezekiel. And of course, you have Jesus being tempted in the wilderness by Satan. Even though God's people flee into the wilderness, that doesn't mean the wilderness is actually that safe of a place. It's got dangerous animals, harsh elements, and a lack of food, water, and shelter. It's not a place that's conducive to the flourishing of human life. In fact, it's often used in the Bible as a symbol of chaos and destruction, just like the sea. So why does the woman flee there? Because the wilderness is where God meets his people and provides for them. In the Bible, the wilderness stands for times of testing, proving, and preparation. It's a place where God teaches his people the hard-learned lesson of completely relying upon him. 
to quote a Chinese woman named Xiao Ai, who was detained by communist authorities for two weeks after they raided her house church. She says, to a certain extent, persecution points us to Christ and his love. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. And verse 14 has very similar language to this. Both verses emphasize three things, that she has a place, that she is nourished, and that the time in the wilderness is temporary. She has a place prepared by God. The word place here is often used in the Bible for temple and even the word sanctuary. It's a place of refuge and safety because God's presence is there. And this is why the second time the woman ends up in the wilderness, she is whisked away by the two wings of the great eagle. It sounds like something out of Lord of the Rings. And it points back to God's deliverance of the Israelites from Pharaoh. Exodus 19, verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Where? In the wilderness. God has a sanctuary for his people in the midst of destruction. It was in the wilderness where God had the Israelites first construct the tabernacle, a place where they could meet with God, where his presence would descend upon the camp. God's never far from his people, especially when they're suffering. The second point of emphasis about the wilderness is that God nourishes his people there. And this points back to when the Israelites ran out of food and water in the wilderness. And God provided water from a rock and provided manna, bread to fall from the skies for them to eat. And for us, Jesus is our manna, our provision in the wilderness. John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He's saying he's everything we need. And then the final point of emphasis is that this time in the wilderness is temporary. Verse six says 1,260 days, which roughly equates to 42 months or three and a half years. And you've heard these numbers before in Revelation. You'll hear them again. What's the significance of three and a half years? Well, three and a half is half of seven. Like I said, I'm good at math. The number uh, seven is the number of completion or wholeness. And, and so this means that what three and a half years represents is not a complete time. It's an incomplete time that is pointing to a later completion. It will come to an end. God will not leave his people forever in the wilderness. There's an expiration date. He's leading them somewhere to the promised land. God's not saying that we're going to avoid suffering in this life, but he is promising that he will see us through it. God guided the Israelites in the wilderness like a shepherd, literally leading them as a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. He is with his people in their suffering. Now, remember the baby boy earlier? Verse five, she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. 
So this verse is a direct reference to Psalm chapter two, and it's alluded to again later in Jesus's second coming, Revelation 19, 15. So it's saying this child is a king, the one true king of the world, not like the dragon. And if you haven't guessed it yet, the baby's Jesus. And his identity is fully confirmed when John says her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And this is a, a compressed way to talk about his death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. The child is reigning as king. And after the child is caught up to the throne and the woman flees into the wilderness, in verse 7, war breaks out in heaven. And the archangel Michael defeats the dragon and Satan is cast out of heaven along with his demons thrown to the earth. Okay, so Satan is defeated, but... How defeated can he actually be if he's still running around pursuing the woman? It's a good point. He's still dangerous. That's true. But every time he tries to fully destroy the woman, look at the text. He can't. She's given the wings of the great eagle. He sends a flood from his mouth and the earth opens up and swallows the flood. It reminds me of Jesus's promise to Peter in Matthew 16, 18. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Satan can hurt the community of God, but he can never fully win. And why will the dragon never win? It's because there's, as Christopher Watkins calls it, an asymmetry between good and evil. You see, we don't live in a world uh, where it's a, a dualistic balance of power between good and evil, and they just fight it out in the universe, and we don't know what the outcome is going to be. No, that's not the universe we live in. C.S. Lewis writes in Mere Christianity that unlike God and goodness, evil is a parasite, not an original thing. Goodness creates and generates life, but all evil can do is take what is good and twist it. It cannot generate new things. It makes counterfeits. It cannot even exist on its own. It's not eternal. And in fact, the dragon and those who follow him are dependent upon God for their very existence. They didn't create themselves, but were originally angels created by God as an overflow of his goodness. And talking about Jesus, Paul writes in Colossians 1.17, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Evil will never win because it's not even in the same league as God. It's like a chihuahua trying to fight a lion. Two seconds later, it's a toothpick. It's, just, it's not happening. When things seem dark, we must remind ourselves of this asymmetry. Evil cannot win. It is literally baked into its existence that it cannot win. The dragon's destiny is so assured that Jesus says in Matthew 25, 41, there is already a place prepared for his eternal destruction. And the prophet Isaiah, speaking of the final day when God fully defeats the forces of evil, he says in Isaiah 27, 1, in that day, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent. He will slay the dragon that is in the sea. Evil didn't have the first word and it's not going to have the last. 
after the dragon is defeated and thrown out of heaven, a loud voice rejoices in verse 10, declaring that Satan has been conquered by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. The word conquer appears 15 times in Revelation. It means victory. All opposition has been defeated. You've won the race. And within the Roman world, they valued strength and power. Victory was a mark of your superiority, and they displayed their dominance through crucifixion. This is how the dragon and his beast pursue victory. What they think conquering looks like, it's the shedding of the blood of their enemies. Revelation 13, 7, also it, the beast, was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. That's how evil thinks it's going to defeat its victims. But Jesus shows a different way. He defeats evil, not through shedding the blood of his enemies, but through his own blood being shed. It's the upside down nature of the kingdom of heaven right there. Listen to this quote from John Stott's incredible book, The Cross of Christ. The Christian claim is that the reality is the opposite of the appearance. What looks like and indeed was the defeat of goodness by evil is also, and more certainly the defeat of evil by goodness. Overcome there, he was himself overcoming. Crushed by the ruthless power of Rome, he was himself crushing the serpent's head. The victim was the victor and the cross is still the throne from which he rules the world. What is being described here is known as the doctrine of Christus Victor, Jesus defeating the powers and the principalities at the cross. And how did he do that? By defeating death itself. Hebrews 2, 14, that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. You see, for all of human history, death, was the ace of Satan's sleeve. It's his greatest gambit. If you can't assimilate, he can't cause you to follow him in his ways, then he can always just destroy you because no one's coming back from death. But when Jesus died on the cross, like a perfect sacrificial lamb, he took the sins of the whole world upon himself. He died in our place, taking the penalty of death we deserve. But because he was perfect, God raised him from the dead. Therefore, not just winning us forgiveness, but also conquering sin, death, and the devil. Colossians 2, 13 through 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus has taken the devil's hold on death away. He said in John 12, 31, while speaking of his coming crucifixion, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Satan has been defeated. But Jesus is not the only conqueror mentioned here. They have conquered. It's plural. 
Who is they? It's the brothers and sisters in the community of God. It says, we share in Christ's victory. And this is echoed throughout the New Testament, Romans 16, 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So how do we share in the victory of the lamb? Is it by fighting the tyranny of Rome with swords and spears? No. By following in the footsteps of the lamb, even unto death. And they have conquered him by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. The word testimony here is the Greek term marturia. It's where we get the modern word martyr. In the first century, it primarily referred to a witness giving testimony in a legal setting. And this happened literally for many Christians during Domitian's reign who had to defend themselves before judges and tribunals and decide, were they going to renounce their faith and declare Caesar as Lord in order to save their life? Or were they going to declare Jesus as Lord and be sentenced to torture and execution? Enough Christians were condemned to death because of their own testimony that the term martyr became synonymous with someone who died for their faith. For they loved not their lives even unto death. And just like the victory was won by Jesus's death, his victory is echoed in the willing deaths of his saints for the sake of the gospel. This right here, it's one of the most counter cultural things about being a follower of Jesus Christ. Society tells us that we should be the center of our world. And, and many Christians have internalized this message. We need to be brash and puff up your chest, have main character energy, fight for your rights, fight for your property, fight for your dreams, fight for your desires. It sounds nice. But that constant message trains us to center ourselves and reject anything that sounds like an impediment to our own personal journey. But the Bible shows that there's a cost to following Jesus. Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's the job description. Cross bearer. Being a disciple means being a follower. And Jesus is wanting us to follow him right up onto that cross. If you claim Jesus as your Lord, then to quote the Heidelberg Catechism, you are not your own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to your faithful savior, Jesus Christ. It's a surrendering up of your personal autonomy, taking up your cross. It's a refusal to cling to the things of this world. Comfort, status, possession, success. And Paul's perspective was in Philippians 3, 8, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. The literal translation is dung in order that I may gain Christ. And it's not that comfort security, safety aren't important or good things. But it's about seeing Jesus as that much more valuable and knowing we are still secure if all those things are taken away from us. 
Nancy Guthrie writes, yes, doing battle against the devil may mean that you lose your, uh, a lot in this life. You might lose your reputation, your friends, your job. You might even lose your life. But to live and die in the Lord will turn out for your blessing. To live your days on this earth all out for Christ, no matter what assault the devil sends your way, is true victory, not defeat. You won't regret it. Your life won't be over. You will awake to find yourself among the many who have laid down their lives for the gospel before you. Jesus himself will comfort and reward you. Paul says in Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He walked the talk. He was executed by Rome. He's saying death is victory. Because through your death, you gain Christ. Therefore, the dragon can take nothing from us. If death is not defeat, if we're not desperately valuing our lives over everything else, what can the dragon do? Nothing. He's lost. It's why authoritarian regimes have never been able to fully stamp out the church. An African early church father named Tertullian, who endured much persecution from the Roman Empire, he said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Rome thinks it's winning by killing you, but it's actually bringing about its own defeat. And even today, in spite of places like uh, North Korea imprisoning every Christian they can get their hands on and outlawing the Bible, there are still an estimated 400,000 Christians following Jesus there in North Korea. And in China, although churches in some places are being destroyed and pastors arrested, Christianity is, there is growing so fast that some estimate that by the year 2030, they will have more Christians than any other country. The gates of hell will not prevail because the risen Christ is ruling and reigning from his throne in heaven. And he promises that he will build his church. No matter what we go through, he will always be with us, even to the end of the age. After the woman was delivered from the dragon a third time, it says in verse 17, then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Who is the rest of her offspring? Well, this is likely John's way of saying that subsequent generations of the community of God will experience the same things. It's an ongoing struggle, and it's going to be further developed in the following chapters of Revelation. And that's why this chapter ends with the dragon on the edge of the sea, looking out over the waters of chaos and destruction. And it's not a fun thought, but we already know how the story ends. His defeat has already been spelled out. May God's promises sustain us as we follow after our king and resist the dragon. Amen. Let's pray.